0: Hello and welcome to the Wisdom Cricket Review Podcast. Before we start today's show, how does the offer of free beer sound to you? As a loyal listener of the show, we'd like to reward you with just that, free beer. Thanks to our friends at Beer52, the UK's most popular craft beer discovery club, you have the opportunity to sip eight free exclusive craft beers from all around the world. All you need to do is go to beer52.com forward slash and just cover the £4.95 postage fee and the beers will be delivered to your doorstep. As well as the beers, you get a magazine and a snack as part of the deal. They send subscribers a crate of beer every month and there's a different theme for the beers each month. You're able to pause or cancel your subscription at any time. Anyway, on with the show. I'm Ron, and with me today is the magazine editor of the Wizarding Cricket Monthly magazine, Joe Harmon. And the show's first ever guest from continental Europe, the musician and football journalist Philippe Eau Claire. Joe, how are you doing?
3: Uh, I'm doing, doing okay. The Easter weekend felt a bit longer than, than was necessary. I don't, didn't feel like I needed four days. So come Monday, I did a, a working day, which is a bit sad, but it felt like a, an escape more than anything else. Um, but yeah, otherwise cracking on okay.
0: Did you watch either of the Sky Sports watch-alongs for the World Cup final and the Heading the Ashes finale?
3: Between, I watched a bit of it on on. TV and I followed them on Twitter so I certainly felt involved in the process which was amazing the amount of people it it involved I mean I suppose people haven't got a lot, <laughs> a lot to do at the time but it, it is amazing that that many people tuned in to, to watch something that they knew the result of um, and were so absorbed in it once again
0: yeah I thought the the addition of the actual watch along with the players and the pundits watching it for the first time through the whole thing again was really cool Stokes in particular was really insightful kind of made me thought that he'd be a he'd be a good captain Anyway, Philippe, great to have you on the show. How have you found the lockdown so far?
2: Uh, listen, I've been strangely enough. I've been very, very busy, <laughs> um, so which helps a lot because, as we know, boredom is also uh, you know one of the most. Uh, well, uh, on a personal level, one of the most, uh, I mean, can be one of the, actually one of the most serious uh, effects of uh, of this lockdown. I mean, I know that a number of friends who are journalists, people who are used to write, people who and who find themselves actually uh, bereft of that, have got, you know, real problems dealing with it, inactivity as much as anything, mental inactivity. I mean, it's valid for all jobs, all professions, but I think we feel it particularly acutely in, in our world of sports um, because the work has dried out, and suddenly many people find themselves, you know, sitting on their hands and not knowing. I mean, being very insecure about the future, but also not having anything to do, and and that kind of boredom is is actually quite quite. Uh, well, it's not healthy at all. But fortunately, um, because my line of work is also investigative journalism, and on this side, football is keeping me very busy <laughs> uh, it's not you know it's not being played on pitches it's not being played in stadiums but it's played uh, in boardrooms and on uh, video uh, links and it's played in, on telephone calls and signal and telegram and whatsapp and everything and it's very very busy so I've, I've been doing okay all things considered listeners who
0: don't know of Philippe you might be wondering why we have a French musician and football journalist on a cricket podcast don't worry we've not lost the pot yet on a recent Guardian Football Weekly podcast, Philippe, you talked about your love of cricket. So I'll start with yes. the, obvious, the obvious question. How do you first discover cricket and then subsequently fall in love with it?
2: Um, I think both were almost simultaneous, really. I think I discovered cricket out of curiosity when I I settled in England, settled in London. That was eighty six, early 1987. And um, as a musician at the time, Uh, 100%. And the person who was the ANR of my record label in England, which was Al Records, part of Cherry Red Records, somebody called Michael Way was an absolute cricket nut. And um, to the point that uh, he actually commissioned, put together a band and commissioned an album called It's a Beautiful Game, which was entirely devoted to cricket. And that was back in 1986. So, you know, a long time before uh, the Duckworth Lewis method and all this sort of thing. So he was completely crazy about cricket. And I was intrigued by his love of the game. And he started to talk about it. And he said something which immediately appealed to me, which is, uh, I-, I told him, how we did you define cricket in one sentence? And he said, it's chess on grass. And since I'm a chess player and, and a decent chess player, I thought, ooh, that might be a game for me. So I bought myself a dictionary of cricket, uh, no internet in those days, and went to Lords, paid my couple of quid in or something like that. And I went to a county game between Middlesex and Warwickshire, and uh, in which I, I think I was in the Warner stand. And I was absolutely enthralled by what I saw. And I was—I uh, think it was the tempo that got to me, the fact that it was fast and slow and slow and fast, that there was time to think, time to uh, to ponder, time to understand, time to question. And at the same time, the action could be unbelievably brutal. I think Wayne Daniel was bowling that day and was bowling really, really fast. And I had no idea that cricket could be that dangerous. So, uh, you know, I, I, I caught the bug just right like that. And then afterwards, I became obsessed. So I started to read about it. And I started to play very, very quickly. Um, and, you know, I, I never looked back on that. And it's, it's, as I said to the Guardian boys, it's by far my favourite game ahead of any other.
3: Yeah, Philippe, I heard you say on the um, podcast, on the Guardian podcast, that you are missing uh, cricket much more than you're missing yes. football. That actually caused a bit of a wave of guilt in me because I realised that I'm, <laughs> I think, it's sacrilegious to say on the Wisdom podcast, but I think I'm missing football more than <laughs> cricket. But then that's partly, I think, because we're now doing three cricket magazines a month rather than the one that we were doing before, um, which we'll come mm. onto I think, later. Um, even though there is no live action to immerse yourself in, it, it doesn't feel like I'm so separated from the game. Whereas football, I'm a season ticket holder at Crystal Palace. I go with my cousins. It's a very social thing. It's part of my routine. So I'm missing that aspect more. I wonder if it's the, the fact that it's it's not the day job. You're missing that release from the day job that is perhaps why you're missing cricket even more than football?
2: Perhaps there might be an element of this, but uh, it's also, for me, cricket is the symbol of the happening of spring. And there's no spring without cricket, and there can't be any summer without cricket. So, And can you imagine, I mean, when we see the weather we have at the moment in the country, this is perfect cricket weather, honestly. You know, you're thinking, and you can hear the sound of ball and bat, and you can smell the grass, and you, you know, you just... I miss the shadows on the grass. I miss um, the comradeship. I miss the um, the, the uh, excitement. I had the thought of going with my friend Giles to to watch the uh, the first test of, of the year. Uh, I had my tickets. Um, I was really looking forward to it. Um, and yes, I, I think I missed everything that is attached. To talk about the social side, you know, and with going to the game at Crystal Palace, I, I missed going to the game at, at at Arsenal. Unbelievably enough. <laughs> <laughs> given how well we're doing. Um, but I, I I miss it, but I don't miss it as much as the prospect of spending a whole day at the Test, uh, which for me is, has always been, I mean, for the last, now, what, 30, 35 years almost, has always been a highlight of my, my life and that every summer I would spend, I would say four or five days, either at Lord's or at the Oval or both, uh, to watch Test cricket. And which is my favorite, I mean, honestly, if I were to choose, you know, my, my favorite moments in life, apart from private moments, perhaps, but uh, I would choose that, going with my friend Giles, bringing our um, hamper, um, doing my crossword, bringing my binoculars, um, and watching the action, especially. And uh, God, I miss it so much. Actually, we shouldn't talk about this because I'm going to finish this this podcast in tears. And we don't want this to happen. It would be very embarrassing.
0: Yeah, I was going to say you're going to make me cry, Philippe. Um, what what are the what are the moments that that stand out from watching cricket with you, with your friend? Is it the, is it the experience itself, or the individual moments of action that really stick out?
2: There are many moments which stick out and um, which we talk about. I think the, the, the talk about cricket is as important, and you will know as that as well as I do. The talk about cricket is almost as important as cricket itself at time. And then, of course, there are always moments that I remember. I mean, I remember. Um, watching um, Richard Hadley bowl for the first time from the Pavilion End at Lords, and being absolutely astounded by the quality of the bowling and the arc that the ball, every single ball, had a different arc to itself. It was just an absolutely masterful demonstration. Um, I remember being there at Lords on the four innings in a day. Um, which probably all remember uh, against the West Indies. I remember Darren Goff's catch. I remember Sachin Tendulkar's catch as well on the boundary. And all these things, you know, I, I, I remember uh, watching um, Sangakara batting a one day and scoring a hundred, which is one of the most beautiful exhibitions of cricket I've ever seen in my life. And, and you can carry on like that. And we, all of us cricket fans have got these moments. And I think they're, in a way, and I don't know if Joe would agree with me, I do remember loads of goals, But I don't remember them with quite the same clarity as I remember cricket moments, perhaps because the concentration is different. When you are a proper cricket watcher, you remember everything. And um, so that is also another thing I miss.
0: I, I used to think that cricket has quite a high barrier to entry for new fans who hadn't been brought up with the game. My opinion on that changed a few years ago in a hostel in Split in Croatia of all places. A friend and, um, and I were were reasonably desperate for a place to stay. We finally found a hostel that had room to fit us in, but we had to wait a few hours in the communal area until there was space. And, but this was on the day of England versus Australia during the 2017 Champions Trophy. And in the corner of my eye, I saw that somebody was watching this game on an iPad. Uh, we spoke to him, turned out he was in Aussie, and we watched the game together. But I was amazed that day by how he would ensure that he tried to explain cricket to everyone else in the hostel mm. who showed some sort of interest. And I remember a Swiss couple ended up watching a lot of the game with us. I'm not sure if cricket has taken off in Switzerland since, but <laughs> um, he he made the game quite simple to understand. So my question was, how long did it take you to understand the intricacies of the game, the the way the, way the game flows?
2: Uh, the intricacies I think uh, quite, quite a, a few years and I think playing as well played a huge part in that even if you know playing badly social cricket because I, I, I created well I created I don't, didn't create I put together uh, a team of, of chumps who were all cricket uh, nuts uh, from both sexes by the way who were mostly drawn from um, uh, the the clients and the staff at Albertine, my my home from home, the Wine Bar and Shepherd's Bush, uh, which was at the time my friend Giles uh, was running it. And and we played a few games together. And I think that you need to have um, this... Uh, first of all, you need to know how hard um, a ball is and how badly it can hurt you. And that I know. <laughs> I think it's essential in, in learning the game. It's essential to be confronted by somebody who is quite pacey. At one point, it's essential to be confronted by somebody who can genuinely spin the ball, even if he spins you know if he's a little, you know his length is all over the place, but he can really spin the ball so then then you start to understand, my goodness, bloody hell, it's a bloody, difficult game to play it's incredibly difficult to play and and then your appreciation grows, and I think after that, it's very much a matter of watching as much of it as you possibly can with people who have a genuine culture and understanding of the game. And um, I, I'm fortunate that I do have people amongst my friends uh, who are genuine, you know, connoisseurs of cricket, who are people who are able to, to write about it and analyze it at length. And I, I think I've kind of become one of these people Um because I, I i wouldn't have a prime i think reporting on cricket as i do on football and i know it sounds like a pretty big thing to say but i've watched an awful lot of cricket and and i've tried to understand it and i think you can't come to to an understanding of the game um for especially since if you, if you've got an inquisitive mind and you realize that precisely there there's an element of chess in in cricket as well as the the purely sporting element and once you get that my goodness, it's it, it's a game that is... Talk about your Australian friend. It's actually not that... I don't find it that complicated in terms of mm-hmm. what the game is, but I find it extraordinarily complex in the way it is played, which are two different things altogether. And uh, so I, th- I think, yes, it took me about four or five years to realize the intricacies of, you know, the LB like before Wicket and so forth, uh, to have, a, you know, to be able to judge. You know, that's a real test, actually, uh, and I would put the question to you. So when we are in a, in a cricket ground, OK, and we're sitting, uh, let's say, three quarters of the way uh, from, from the pitch, we're not, we're not behind the bowler's arm. I think that when you've watched enough cricket and you can be 100 meters from, from what's happening, when a bowler hits the pad, you know if it's LBW or not. And you're not behind the bowler's arm, but you know it. You absolutely know it, and that is something that comes with, uh, I think, uh, a lot of watching um, and and a lot of understanding angles and and things uh, things of that kind. And this is the moment where you realise, actually, I think I get that game. <laughs> I think I get it now.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm a bowler, so if it hits the pad, it's almost it's all always got. Oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. always yeah, <laughs>
3: Philippe I wanted to ask you you've written um a couple of widely acclaimed biographies of Eric Cantona and and more recently your your book on Thierry Henry um if a publisher was to come to you and say I I hear you love cricket uh mm. here's a blank page you can do a biography of any cricketer living or dead um that you want who would be some of the characters that immediately come to mind who would you want to explore in a bit more depth
2: I think I would uh go probably for players of the past if only because it's I'm um, it's it's an exercise that I would I would prefer I think uh if I'm thinking about it um I think I would do a, I would be very interested to do a, a critical biography of Don Bradman <laughs> and because I don't think there has been one um there have been books about the Don but I was really struck I think it's because of one thing. I, I was struck when I was reading um, uh, something that Tiger O'Reilly had written about Bradman. Because Bradman is a god, of course, in Australia. But it seems that there was a huge difference between the man and, and, and the batsman. And that it was actually quite complex and quite dark character. And I'd like to know more about that. So, yeah, The Dawn would be one. Um, I think Leary Constantine would be another one. Um and of course, my favourite cricketer of all time, which is Abdul Kadir, uh, no doubt. I would love to do this, and to delve into uh, Abdul's life and uh, and his uh, the mystique of his bowling. I would love to do that. But I don't know if it would be a bi- bi- biography. I think it would be more of a a complete um, uh, hero worshipping <laughs> 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 celebration of the man who made me understand more about cricket than any other. Was it, the, was it the art of leg spin that initially drew you in with Gadir? Yeah, yeah, and and it was the fact that I, I was, when I came into cricket, which was late, the mid and late 80s, was not a good time for spin bowling uh, at all. Um, and I was, and I loved spin bowling from the off, which is also a good sign. And And I was really very sad to see that, you know, there were fewer and fewer of those wonderful spinners which of course, as we now know, was only the, the calm before a tsunami of fabulous spinners, but I went to the Oval in 1987, and I saw, uh, you know, it was a feather bed, basically. So I think Javed scored 260, something like that, against England, and Abdul kadir I, I loved everything about it, because it was so eccentric. I said, how can you be such a successful bowler with a run-up like that? And all the things he was doing with this ball on this dead pitch, my goodness. And I just love the mystique of it. And and I liked the way that he was so passionate about it, the contrast between the uh, crazy appealing and the extraordinary um, complex thought process which brought him to, you know, all these variations that he had and the, the complexities of his bowling. The uh, the As I said, there's the quasi-mystical approach that he had to bowling. I absolutely loved that. And I loved the man. I, I loved what he represented and I've always had a, a very soft spot for Pakistani cricket anyway. I think, you know, when you arrive to cricket in the uh, mid, late 80s and, you know, you've got these guys, I mean, some fabulous batsmen, but especially the bowling, you know, you've got Wazim and Abdul Qadir, uh, wow, and Wakayunis, of course. So you can't do much better than that. And I love the way they played and so forth. So I'll stop now because if I talk about Abdul Qadir, I could, I could speak, speak to the cows come home. Because I owe him really my first moment of genuine... A Damascene moment as it were about spin bowling was watching that particular game at the oval.
0: The the way you describe your affection towards the game, it sounds like it's directed predominantly towards the longer forms of the game. Is, is that fair? Do you get anywhere near the same joy watching a game of T twenty cricket, for example?
2: No, no no I don't. I mean I, I I don't mean I don't enjoy it. I can enjoy the good uh, good bash like everybody else, but um, I'm first and foremost a um, somebody who loves test cricket and, and then and county cricket. Um and I, I, I go from time to time um, to, to, to watch. I used to be a member of Middlesex, actually. I have to say it was not because of any particular infeodation of myself, but because I wanted to go to Lords. And uh, I, I go and watch sorry from time to time with friends who are members there. So, yeah, I would miss the longer form of the game, either, you know, three, four, and especially five-day game.
0: You, you say you're a massive fan of Abdul Qadir. He would have been a wonderful T20 bowler. Um, have you enjoyed seeing leg spinners play a more prominent role in...
2: T20 cricket. Yeah, I absolutely love that. I was, I was just reading, actually, a piece that Mike Atherton did with an analyst from uh, Crickviz, and in which he was saying something, which actually I wasn't aware of, that the eight toppermost bowlers um, in, uh, in T20 are leg spinners. Mm. That's astounding. And, um, of course, it's a very different kind of leg spin. And it's based on a completely di- different dynamic. But yes, I'm obviously delighted uh, about that. But I'm really interested to see how this um, new uh, you know, influx of, of leggies uh, is going to translate into longer forms of the game. That's, and I'm wondering if it can. I think that's a question that we're all asking ourselves. Because cricket is it actually, which is another thing, which is fascinating. We've, we haven't got one game. We've got as many games as there are forms of the game we've got mm. T20, we've got 50 over, we've got, I missed the 60 over, which I think is a really good formula, but that's, that's me being a bit uh, nostalgic here. Uh, then you can think of, you know, single innings games. So every, every single form of it is different. And, and the way they can communicate in terms of skill is absolutely fascinating. And one of the, which is one of the reasons why I'm not an anti-T20 or, you know, uh, the 100, I'm not too sure about. Uh, by the way, I played a game of the 100 <laughs> really yeah um with uh, uh my friends from Auth- authors ccc which i'm desperately trying to uh to get into and i i will get there in the end but i played for them okay. uh once and we were we played actually um, we we decided we would um try out the uh, uh the 100 format and actually it was wasn't wasn't too bad but i think it wasn't too bad because the level, our level was not too good. <laughs> so it felt like a long time, if you see what I mean. <laughs> I'm not absolutely convinced. I mean, it's not that I'm not absolutely convinced. I shouldn't be uh, uh, that polite. I actually think that I think the idea is uh, utterly, is complete balls, basically. Um, we don't need it, and um, we don't need it at all. I think T20 does the job perfectly all right. It's, um, we,
0: we, we could spend a few hours on the, the, the pros yeah. and cons of the hundred.
2: And we have done as well. <laughs> and I'm sure you have and I'm sure you will.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We've got a, lo- a long uh, few months ahead of us. I think your point on leg spin is quite interesting. Uh, I, was, I was at the Under-19 World Cup earlier in the year and out of the five best bowlers in the tournament, three of them were definitely leg spinners. Right. Um, and some teams had two leg spinners. and uh, It's quite interesting. And I, I think it would be uh, fascinating to see how, particularly with T20 cricket, if teams... Fill their, te- fill their 11s with more and more leg spinners in the years to come.
2: Um, we'll have to do, a lot to do with pitch preparation, by the way, which is another, a big question for me, which is one thing I'd like to, uh, which I don't think we talk about enough. Um, the fact that, you know, you can have, I wouldn't mind seeing T20 on a raging turner. <laughs> Doesn't happen very often.
0: I mean, what, what, one of my favourite ever games of T20 cricket was a uh, raging turner. It was the India-New Zealand game in the world, T20, a few years ago, where uh-huh. New Zealand basically just dropped the entirety of their seam attack, uh, their brilliant <laughs> seam attack, uh, for the pitch itself, and it, and it worked out for them. They, they won the game. Um, yeah, spin, spinners are so effective in T20 cricket. I saw a stat from QuickViz the other day, a, a graph that showed that in every single over, with maybe the exception of one in the T20 game, spinners have a better economy rate than fast bowlers, and that's with the pitches as they are now. So I wonder if in the years to come, we'll see more and more spinners being used in, in T20 cricket, and, yeah. and maybe that will filter on into the other forms of the game.
3: But then there is, there is, as Philippe um, alluded to, there is this idea that they're increasingly becoming two completely different art forms, bowling spin in T20 and tense cricket. There's no, There are actually no leading spinners uh, for the leading nations Uh, who play in both the T20 and Test side regularly at the moment obviously Rashid Khan does for Afghanistan but Nathan Lyon for Australia doesn't really play any in much short form cricket at all Uh, the same with the Indian spinners they almost have their set for T20 and their set for Test cricket so it's hard to see if there is actually going to be that knock-on effect or whether they actually just diverge even further and become very Mm -hmm. different art forms where you bowl flat and fizz it in in T20 and traditionally you give it a bit more loop in Test cricket and and do the same thing repeatedly in Test cricket, whereas T20 is about variation and trying as many different things as possible.
0: Yeah, on, on that, I was amazed by how long the run-ups were for some of these leg spinners in the Under-19 World Cup. Um, a guy called Ravi Bishnoi, who I'm sure will be a superstar in a few years' time, he run, his, his run-ups longer than some medium paces. Um, <laughs> and it's very a flat, very flat trajectory, um, much like Rashi Khan. As an outsider in the way that you came to the game late and in that you work professionally in football... What do you think, if anything, lifelong cricket fans take for granted?
2: Huh. I'm not. I'm not so sure we we do um, take anything for granted because, precisely, I think for cricket fans, um, the five-day game is the supreme form of the game, and because of the fact that the status of the five-day game is constantly, um, you know, scrutinized and tempered with in ways that honestly scare the living daylights out of true cricket fans, I think. Well, anyway, all of the friends that I go to the cricket with and whatever, you know, their age is, by the way. Um, I think in a way that we don't take too many things for granted. I think we're aware of the fact that it's a very precious, very precious game, which, like most other games, has been it has been protected by the absence of money. <laughs> I know it won't sound crazy to say that, because you know uh, cricketers at the top level earn a lot of money they, they exchange uh, you know for the auction and for fortunes in the ipl and so forth they make a very good living but it's peanuts compared to what it is in other sports absolute peanuts and that has protected the game the absence of big big money um, including in broadcasting you know the contracts you know, you, you cannot compare you know with even with tennis it's, or golf, and obvious, obviously with, with football, or Formula One, you carry on. So it's, I think we because of that, we have a slightly different attitude towards the game. And I don't think I know of any true cricket fans amongst my friends, and I've got quite a few, who take genuinely anything for granted at the moment. I think there is a slight, it's more a slight worry, I think, interrogation are we going the right way uh, are we focusing on the right things people are worried about the balance as well of power in world cricket is there too much power on the subcontinent now as there was too much power in england for a while and and you can carry on and also you know do you worry for the state of the game would uh, you see you know the attendances for test matches and you compare to all these things you worry about so no i don't think we take anything for granted but do you think we do? Because I might be completely wrong. My perception might be completely wrong for that. No, I,
3: I think cricket fans are, are born warriors. I think there's always, <laughs> there's always something to be uh, concerned about. I think it's part of the nature of playing the game. There's always something to worry about playing the game because there's so much focus on you as an individual. And perhaps I'm talking from, from my own lack of ability here. But when you come on to bowl, all, all eyes are on you. When you go into bat, again if you if you miss a straight one it's only you missing a straight one you can't blame your teammates um, and then I think that filters through the, the very nature of the game especially now with the different formats there is so much to be constantly considering and wondering if we're going the right route and should we be doing this the world test championship is the, probably the most recent example mm. this took so long to come to fruition and now it's here in a rather convoluted confusing format Everyone's already questioning whether it was the right thing to do in the first place, and this this is just the I think the nature of cricket, and I don't know if football really has the same issues in the same way because it's so huge, because it's so dominant, it doesn't really need to consider its place in the world because in its world it is the world. If you see what I mean,
2: mm. it is it is it is considered, and football is also something to be really worried about, but it's for completely different reasons. We're not looking at uh, you know. Uh, there was a time in football we were worried about, you know, um, the four quarter times replacing, you know, the uh, the halves, for example. Uh, we were worried about we worried about VAR, but we're not worried about cancelling the format of a football game. There's still, you know, that's it. That's eleven v eleven with so many substitutes. Who, who cares? But that's that's the way it is. And it basically has hardly changed since the people from Sheffield and Cambridge start, made the first rules, or laws, I should say. It has evolved, the laws have evolved, but it's basically the same. Just like baseball has stayed the same, almost completely, cricket hasn't. Cricket has, has changed and changed and changed and changed and is and caught, actually, uh, and is constantly interrogating itself about which shape it should take in the future. Like, for example... Well, what we're doing with thinking of, of doing four day tests? I mean, good grief, come on, guys, are you crazy or what? you know you don't want that, obviously, you don't want that and but people are thinking and talking about it. It's a bit like saying, "Oh, I think we should have eighty minute you know football games well no we we don't want them. We want ninety minutes because you want also you want a continuum a cultural continuum which also allows you to evaluate things from yesterday and things from today and things from tomorrow. You don't want to break the continuity in the cultural rapport you have with the game. And unfortunately, in cricket, we we have people who would be quite happy to do that for financial gain.
0: But do you think in cricket, these these questions will be asked more now that money is having potentially more of an impact on the game? Uh, There there are sound financial reasons why a lot of countries don't want to host five-day test matches or certainly three-match series consisting of five-day test matches. Um, There are good reasons why young players coming through now will focus on T20 cricket more. Um, yeah. Rod Singh just this week said that he worries that young players in India now don't care about Test cricket. They they're very happy being domestic players in first class at first class level in um, List A cricket, but because as soon as you get a T Twenty contract at an IPL franchise, that's life changing.
2: Yeah. Um, what can I say apart from the fact that you're absolutely right? But I'm wondering if this is a global problem or if it's something which is not. Um, you know, specifically linked to the IPL and to the fact that India is the economic powerhouse of cricket. The other thing I would tell you, and that I I don't have any answer to that, we're going to have to see how, um, you know, what is happening at the moment is going to impact cricket. We know the impact on football is going to be absolutely phenomenal because the, the money is going to go out of the game. And I'm not just talking about the fact that games being postponed or games being played behind closed doors for a long time, but I'm also thinking about sponsorship and broadcasting rights. They're going to nosedive and everybody knows that the value of place is going to nosedive. Well, what if this happens to the IPL, (laughs) you know, it changes the whole picture very, very quickly indeed. And, um, and the money might not be there. Um, you know, it's, uh, whereas the money for test cricket certainly in England and in Australia is there
0: hmm.
2: because the broadcasting money and also you know you, you get how many tens of thousands of people to go to the uh, to the MCG or to Sydney or to and even in, in New Zealand I was I was struck by the fact that the crowd's actually pretty damn good there for, for test matches and you're thinking yeah that that's fine for the IPL which depends so much on the broadcasting money sponsorship and the rest of it um, I think it's quite different so It's going to be very interesting, perhaps not in a very positive sense, but it's going to be very interesting to see how cricket deals with the current situation um, in in this particular form of the game. And if we are not going to question the questions we were asking ourselves.
0: There is an article in the upcoming edition of The Pinch Hitter, the interactive digital magazine produced in association with The Night Watchman, about someone, David Crossan's experience of commentating on a match at Lord's in French. Um, (laughs) Philippe, you weren't aware of that occurring, were you? Joe, do you want to explain what happened there?
3: Uh, Well, well, I wasn't aware of it until yesterday either, until I was was proving this piece. Um, But David Crossan is a journalist who used to be um, a correspondent for Eurosport uh, cricket. Mm -hmm. And it was the opening game of the 2009 World T20, England v. Netherlands. And he was commentating on the game with a French co-commentator who knew nothing about cricket at all. Um, on the England-Netherlands game, which obviously played out to be an astonishing shock win for for the underdogs. Um, And this was uh, televised on Eurosport France.
2: Okay. Um,
3: And, yeah, the, the piece is basically him trying to, a little bit like what we've just been talking about, trying to focus on the simple things of cricket that are easy to understand and mean you can follow the narrative of the game without getting lost in too much of the terminology, uh, particularly when it involves some translations into French, which wouldn't necessarily completely make sense when they they were done. Um, But yeah, so that's that's in uh, issue two of The Pinch Hitter, which is out tomorrow, Friday. Excellent.
0: It'd it'd be great if we could find the original video from that game. It must exist somewhere.
2: (laughs) Well, listen, I, I, I do some work for Eurosport France, so maybe I should ask the question. Ah, okay. There we go. There's so I maybe I should ask. <laughs> I've always thought that it would be possible to sell cricket to uh, continental audiences, but not to sell it uh, by showing games as, um, you know, like a live game or, you know, or even highlights. I think you should sell it the way that Sumo was sold to a, a British audience by Channel 4, is that to use the action as a means to explain what was going on. And then afterwards, you educate. And I remember I was, I was completely hooked on sumo. And I learned everything there was to, to learn about sumo because the program was wonderfully put together. And also there was, there was obviously an exotic value to sumo that there is to cricket. so And you actually use that as a means to, um, to hook the audience. The fact that they precisely they do not understand at all what's going on, that is the thing that should be making them hooked. And then afterwards, after you educated them, then you can show them the action. And um, I can't see why that shouldn't, be, that shouldn't be done. And if there are anybody, any people listening on the continent to this uh, podcast, I'm, I'm a willing uh, participant in any experiment of that kind. <laughs> fantastic. You I, it, heard fantastic. it here first.
3: So
0: the, the piece also alludes to a much longer history and relationship between France and cricket than I ever knew.
3: Are you coming to me for this?
0: Yeah. <laughs> first first You're you, then Obviously Khalif. the
2: specialist.
3: <laughs> oh, my word. Um, no, it was, it was well, the, well, actually, I think Philippe knew some of this as well, but is the, the origin of the word cricket coming from cricket, which I believe is, is stick. Philippe, is that,
2: is that correct? Uh, yeah, there is, there, there, there is debate about it, but it can be said. And it's, as, especially it's, it was played in my region of France, in Normandy, near Dieppe. I think one of the first uses of the, the word cricket is uh, 15th century, and it was uh, uh, in my part of France.
3: And is it still play i mean the this piece we 're referring to mentions the the super league in France, which um, the writer says is a kind of a reasonable standard do you see Do you ever see cricket as you're as you 're driving through the French countryside do you ever, do you ever spot a game? Mm,
2: no, I would have to look for it. Uh, there are a couple of um, pitches which are installed uh, in Picardie, uh, which is really one of the hotbeds of the game because of a Uh, a French-English teacher who started uh, his own cricket uh, academy there, which uh, was working quite well. Uh, There are obviously um, parts of France like the Dordogne and and the Charente where there is quite a large uh, British expat or immigrant community uh, which is there and plays cricket, and so you have some pitches there and when near Paris in the Bois de Boulogne I've seen a couple of teams play yeah absolutely uh, but you've got to look for them uh, it's not what I would call the mass participation sport no um, mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and obviously most of the people who tend to play it are people who come from cricket originally from cricket playing countries I mean um when i first i first met the french cricket team back in 1991 in the in the Europe, european cricket cup i think of the uh 15 or 16 people who, t- who made the trip to guernsey for france i think only about a fourth a, th- a fourth were people who hadn't come out uh, were not originally from cricket playing countries but there were a few you know so called indigenous french people uh who were there Uh, Because there's also, don't forget, there's a cricket tradition in New Caledonia. Uh, There is a small cricket tradition in the French West Indies as well. So there are, you know, it's not as inexistent as people think. And it's actually one of my great bones of contention. But we can come back to that later. Another point is the fact that uh, the ICC completely um, uh, gave up on its its mission, its role and its duty uh, to be an ambassador for the game, in parts of the world where it is not played because, believe me, the people would be playing it if it was encouraged and we didn't have this stupid tier system um, ranking nations the way they are at the moment. It's completely wrong. It's always been a big, big bone of contention for me, but it's a completely different debate. Cricket could be a universal sport and should be a universal sport, but there's nothing has been done to promote it properly in so-called non-traditional cricket countries. That's a, that's a, a big disappointment, I think. Do you think the Olympics would be a good route to do that? Yeah, absolutely. There's, I can't see why a game that is played by, what, or watched by two billion people on the planet, something like that, perhaps more. I'd yeah. say so two billion. I say 2000000000 i can not say why this game shouldn't be present at the Olympics if, you know, people, golf had been talked about, for goodness sake. Uh, and and baseball. That's that's crazy. That's utterly crazy. Yes, baseball is popular in the US, Mexico, Cuba, um, venezuela japan and that's it that's it uh cricket is popular in far more countries and and it's got to be promoted if you want cricket to carry on in countries like holland or denmark uh, which have been outposts of the game for a very long time but very little is done to help them and um and which is uh, i find very very frustrating uh that's you know it's not the fact that if you're, if you're Dutch, you've got to play for an English county um, to have a career. That's quite normal because that's what happens anyway in football as well. You know, you go to where money is to be a professional. But not to support the um, the grassroots game is, I, I think, a dereliction of duty. But I, I, I get very angry when I talk about that because, honestly, I think cricket could be genuinely become a universal sport. It deserves to be. It would make the world a better place. We can all agree with that.
0: Other than it appearing in the Olympics, how how else would you promote cricket to parts of the world that is not that prominent at the moment? Uh,
2: I would say uh, it's a very, very easy way to do it. Uh, It's it's simple. It's it's investing in infrastructure, uh, which is what is missing. Uh, Cricket equipment doesn't come cheap uh, and is sometimes very, very difficult to find. So, um, and you should encourage that. I mean, in countries where there's already like a strong cricket tradition, like in Kenya, for example, you should do more for the game there. Uh, you should obviously do more for the game in Afghanistan, even if there have been some, you know, some things done there. But I, I would take the example of Corfu. I know Corfu quite well. And Corfu cricket is also um, a, a very important part of the Corfu identity. Now, they're obliged to play. I mean, I don't know if you've played there, or if you watched games there. The, the, the surfaces they play on are just not right. And they don't have the proper equipment. And, and um, you know, it's just the possibility of having nets. It's Imagine if you're, in, in, you know, in the Czech Republic and you want to start a cricket club, and there are cricket clubs in the Czech Republic, how difficult it is to put things together. A, a little bit of help, and that's financial help, would go a long way. And then it's a program of coaching. It's the thing that is being done in, in I, w- I would imagine, most of the sports, particularly in football. That's one of the things that FIFA and, does actually quite well. And uh, there's no reason why there shouldn't be pro- development programs which wouldn't cost the earth, which would promote the game of cricket. And by promoting the game of cricket, you increase the audience of cricket and therefore you I- increase the commercial potential of cricket. And it's one way of looking at the game which I think is completely missing from, from the plans of, of the governing bodies. Uh, to start with, it was because of, I would call a colonial attitude, let's put it that way. It's that foreigners, they can't understand cricket anyway. Um, And then it's from this, uh, you know, a a very insular way of uh, looking at cricket culture and and to have this idea um, hardwired into your brain that it's a game that can only be understood and appreciated by certain people. That is crazy. Borderline racist, actually. So um, I I would say that there is so much that can be done. And again... If anybody from ICC is listening to this, if they're looking for a development officer for France and other continental countries, uh, I'd be very, very happy to help. (laughs) (laughs) Especially these days.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's really interesting. Um, I think the the success story of Thailand and their women team is interesting. Mm -hmm. That's a country with a large population who uh, have an infrastructure in place where they can compete in terms of participation levels with the established test-playing nations in the women's game, at least. Um, And they've been qualifying for a 10-team World Cup early this year and competing well in that 10-team World Cup. Um, I thought it was one of the game's biggest success stories in recent times. Um, Philippe, tell us about your involvement with the Sports Freelancer Collective. What does it do? What do you do?
2: Um, Well, uh, I think like when when sport was cancelled, which basically for football came on the 13th of March, um I think within 24 hours, I lost two of my jobs. Uh, I'm a pure freelancer. I've always been a pure freelancer. And um, I thought, if I'm in this situation, I think an awful lot more people must be in the same situation. So I, I mooted the idea at the beginning, it was literally just on spur of the moment thing, to my friends of the Football Writers Association, um, who, um, you know, I'm a member of the National Committee there. And I said, well, I think maybe we could do something like to reach out to freelancers within our membership and this was taken on by our chair, Carrie Brown and by our general uh, our, our secretary, um, Paul McCarthy uh, and and then uh, we got in touch with the SJA uh, with Janine South and we realised actually there's a lot which can be done here and then especially uh, we brought the uh, cricket writers in so which is why you got Ali Mitchell plays a very big role in it and it's kind of, uh, yeah, I mean, Carrie, Janine, uh, Ali, uh, Maca, me, and, and a few other people, we decided to put this thing together, and, which is basically to provide advice uh, and help uh, to people who are sports journalists, broadcasters, photographers too, who suddenly have had the trapdoor open under their feet and find themselves without any resources, any prospect of having any income for months to come and perhaps longer than that so something had to be done uh, to to start with to inform people of what was available to them in terms of government help or help from other sources also to give I think us in the freelance sports industry or what was what it was uh, a feeling that you were not alone fighting on your own which is a a horrible place to be and believe me some of the messages I've received uh, you know uh, were absolutely heartbreaking and and to team up together to provide help, we've got, um, which is absolutely fantastic. We got a, a, an accountant, uh, an employment lawyer, a mortgage advisor, uh, volunteered their service after hearing about this initiative, on, on on the Guardian Football Weekly, and actually volunteered, got in touch with me, uh, and actually, if you can, perhaps we, you, I can give an email address on which people who listen to this and who might be, cons- you know, have something to do with it, either because yeah, they want definitely. to contribute. Uh, or they themselves are in this situation, and and it's grown out of that. And we now have a regular newsletter, quite a big database, so we inform people what is going on with COVID nineteen legislation, uh, the self employed scheme. Uh, we direct them towards uh, various re- online resources with HMRC. Uh, we provide mental health help as well. We've got now two uh, psychotherapists who have also who are donating their time to us. To help the people who are feel the most vulnerable, we can put them in touch with that, so and it 's growing and growing, and we also I mean I have to say we are lobbying force because we want you know we 've been completely forgotten uh, in the current crisis, and I 'm not saying we should be f- front of the queue, but I 'm saying that sports freelancers, just like I mean the, the world of entertainment and sport have been the hardest hit economically by what is happening because it's not, there's nothing left, nothing. So we thought we'd do something about it, and that's what the Sports Freelancers Collective is about. And if people want to get in touch with me, very simple send me an email uh, at Philippe, one L and two piece, please. Auclair, A U C L A I R, dot F W A for Football Writers Association at gmail dot com. That's simple Philippe dot Auclair dot F W A at gmail dot com. If you want to be part of our, of the team, you know, join us. If you want to have your name added to our database and you're a journalist, a broadcaster, uh, a content provider, a photographer working in sport, not just football, not just cricket, it can be boxing, it can be tennis, anything, get in touch with us. And thank you very much, guys, for um, giving me a, a chance to, uh, to let people know about this initiative.
0: No worries. That's absolutely fantastic. Before the show, we asked our listeners on Twitter and Facebook um, about who their favourite cricketers of all time were from non-test-playing nations. Uh, we've got some great names in. We've got Dwayne Leverock, he's a very popular answer, Pavel Florin, Brian Tenderscarter, Steve Ticcolo, Carl Kurtzer, Sandeep Lamikane, um, Philippe, Joe, any, any glaring omissions from that list?
2: Uh, my goodness, that's a tough one. Well,
3: I, I had two. One's a little bit of a cheat. Um, well, not really. So one is uh, Ole Mortensen. Oh, uh, yeah. That's a bit of a cheat. no. No. No, no, I think he's he was he retired in 1994, so I'm not even convinced I saw him in the flesh. I would have only been 9 at the time, but I used to get the Cricketers Who's Who every year and I remember flicking through it and seeing this Danish man with an enormous mustache just wondering how on earth he'd ended up in county cricket. He felt like this kind of mythical Nordic figure. Um and as in as years have gone by, I've kind of realized that he was a fantastic bowler as well. Um, and my other one, which is more of a cheat, is, is Geraint Jones, who was obviously born in, in no, Papua, no. New, Papua New Guinea and, and did play for Papua New Guinea and has done a lot for the sport there as well. We're talking about Thailand being a, an inspiration of a, as, a, as a country who haven't really got the, the infrastructure as such, but have come from nowhere. Papua New Guinea are another example of that as well. Uh, and Geraint Jones is just one of the nicest men in, in cricket now as well. He's a fireman, a teacher, doing a degree in business, also still playing club cricket for his village um he's a he's a lovely man
0: but that is still cheating though i mean he's a 2005 ashes hero
3: well you said from a non-test playing (laughs) nation he is from a non-test playing nation right (laughs) well
0: he played test cricket so um i'll I'll give you that this week saw the return of wiz in india with me over zoom is the editor of wiz in india Manoj narayan Manoj, what is wiz in india what's it about and how can people follow it
1: well, Wisden India, well, it's been there before. Wisden has been, had a presence in India over the last two decades in various formats. But it's only over the last decade when Wisden India first, Wisden India first started in, in India. That was in 2012. Built a nice reputation for covering the lesser, you know, fancied aspects of cricket in the country, like women's cricket, domestic cricket. Um, shut down in 2018, and we are bringing it back. We want to do more on domestic cricket and women's cricket, and we will, but it will also be, you know, about, you know, Indian cricket is in a very good place at the moment, and this team is very strong, the women's game is becoming very popular. The junior setup, as you know, yes, and, you know, it it can probably rival a few senior teams around the world, too. Mm. So yeah, it's a good time to be an Indian fan and and we hope we have a good website for the good Indian
0: fans. So how do people uh, follow the content from Wiz in India?
1: Social channels, I think. As with everything these days, we have, you know, Twitter, we have Facebook, we have Instagram. So just log onto your phones, get
0: following. So if you're in India, Wizin.com automatically refers to Wiz in India?
1: Yeah, you just have to... Earlier, you'd log on to wisdom.com, you would go to the overall Wisdom website. So now what we've done is we have dedicated a page, you know, specifically for the Indian audience. So if you log on to wisdom.com, you go to wisdom.com slash India, and there you find all India-related news as well as subcontinent, you know, news related to the Indian subcontinent in general. So, yeah, it's not just for all people in India. You know everyone can follow
0: it whoever well, was interested in Indian cricket. And you had a really exciting launch. You had some, some exclusive interviews that went out and then a couple of really interesting pieces from some of your some of your writers.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh we had some really interesting stuff going out. We had uh you know one of the future stars of Indian cricket I think is where um Jaiswal. So Adya Sharma, you know he's he's already done a few pieces with Jaiswal. So we Went ahead and spoke to him again after what was a good World Cup for him. Keshev, who who is a fairly well-known name in the women's cricket circles. She's written, a, you know, she did an interview with Punam Yadav, who had a very good World Cup in, in, in Feb and March. And she's also done a very nice piece on what cricket should be like after this COVID-19 break. All very interesting stuff. I think people should check it out. Fantastic. That sounds all very exciting. Cheers, Miloje. Thanks, Yaz.
0: Finally, last week, I looked at some of our podcast listening stats and I could see how many people are listening to various episodes. Uh, and frankly, listeners, I'm concerned um, by how many of you are listening to our like, daily episodes from England's tour in New Zealand and random episodes from uh, the, our World Cup dailies last summer. I mean, I'm, I'm glad you're listening to them. But my point is more, uh, we have, we actually have some really interesting old interviews that were done oh, early, early-ish 2019 that some of our newer listeners might not have listened to. So if you are bored and you are looking for old podcast material to look for, um, I particularly recommend the interview with Zafran Sari during the World Cup. That would have been in June 2019. Uh, Oli Rayner, who's recently retired, uh, we had an interview with him again probably in June 2019 mel jones nyle o'brien we had some good stuff last summer that some of our new listeners might not have listened to uh, joe any old episodes that you remember that you'd particularly recommend i do think that's
3: a definitely a better shout than listening to our day three roundup of a hamilton test match from <laughs> six months yeah. ago which sounds like an odd thing to be doing but you know we've got a lot of time to kill i can understand that um who else have we had on the the decade in review podcasts are worth going back to so we had a panel that picked the test team of the decade we did odis t20s and women's team as well did we
0: we didn't do a t21 we, we did, did a women's and ODI. Uh, men's test men's odis and women's cross format
3: so all that stuff would still be a good listen i reckon I mean, i'm mean i a bit biased but yeah i think, I think it seemed interesting <laughs> at the time
0: <laughs> yeah uh, as long as you're not listening to our um, mount monganui day two rap <laughs> uh i think i think you'll be all right uh, anyway, Philippe, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. it would be great to have you on again when this is all over.
2: Yeah, and uh, An absolute pleasure for me to talk about cricket. That's, uh, that's a lovely thing to talk about and a lovely thing to look forward to. It will come back guys at some point and it will feel so sweet.
0: It definitely will. Uh, Joe, thanks as always. Cheers, Yaz. Yes. This has been the Wiz and Cricket Weekly Podcast. If you've enjoyed the show, tell a friend and if you're feeling especially kind, feel free to leave us a five-star review on the podcast app. Cheers.
1: Network.